We've been in the book of Acts now for um, just under nine months, almost without stop as a church. Um, and, and so I hope that encourages you somewhat as you look on uh, what you've learned and the lessons that God has taught you and um, maybe even your own personal study going alongside of Acts as we've gone through it, that that's a great thing. And it's really just the small things in life that really make the biggest impact. They pile up, don't they? You know, if you just read a little bit of Bible every day, um, then it has that cumulative effect. It piles up, uh, and uh, it certainly has for us. And so I just want to remind you of that and encourage you, before we even get into uh, the last bit of Acts here, that this is a great thing. It's something to, to celebrate. It's something to think of. Uh, it, is, it is the slow and persistent faithfulness that really wins the war. And, um, and so I encourage you to maybe think about that today afterward um, of your own uh, lessons that God has talked talk to you and, and, and taught you as we've gone through Acts. Maybe journal them down and think about them uh, for the future. But uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and get into the uh, end of Acts here. And we'll be in Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 17. And right before we do that, and I start reading, I'd like to uh, recap for us just a little bit of what's happened. Now, obviously, I'm not going to be recapping 28 chapters this morning, but I will Uh, just give you kind of uh, a little bit of a snapshot of the theme of Acts. Just about nine months ago when we started, Chris Henson kicked off the sermon series for us, and he gave us uh, a theme, arguably the theme that pervades Acts, and it's this. That is the, Acts is about the powerful, unstoppable movement of God to save people that happens through those who've experienced Jesus and are being led by his Spirit. I'll say that again because it's, it's a little bit of a run-on sentence, but it's a lot to capture everything. Acts is about the powerful, unstoppable movement of God to save people that happens through those who've experienced Jesus and are being led by His Spirit. And that is something that we've seen in every chapter of Acts as we have gone through it. And if you're not familiar with Acts here today, then uh, it is the story of how the church came into the world, of how the church took over the world. And as it began, we saw that it was all about boldness. And so there are a number of themes within that kind of main theme that we can take apart and we have through the weeks and months. But today we're going to focus on boldness because that's kind of where the book ends. And that's kind of the last idea in the entire book is boldness. And we've seen it pop up many times throughout the book of Acts. And I won't even give you verse-by-verse verse run-through of it, but uh, just to give you kind of a, the, the biggest overview that I can, how does the book begin? It begins with Jesus meeting with his disciples, them asking when he's going to take over the world, and his response is, you don't need to know that. What you need to know uh, is what to be faithful with, and here's what to be, uh, you need to be faithful with. It's the gospel message. And so he says, I'm going to ascend to the Father, and after I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come and empower you and give you boldness for the work of the ministry, for the gospel. And so we see 
character-wise, stands up through the Holy Spirit and preaches the gospel. And thousands of people come to faith. Peter is bold with the gospel. Not only that, we see that after Peter, who stands up? Stephen. And he preaches the gospel in boldness, such that people kill him because he's so bold over it. And then we see Philip stand up. And he goes throughout the world preaching the gospel in boldness. And then last, the last kind of key character in Acts that we see it focusing on is Paul, who is completely opposed to Jesus and Christianity and then becomes kicking and screaming a Jesus follower like the early disciples. And what does he do? He enters the world with boldness, proclaiming the gospel, going from city to city to city on three missionary journeys, and then one last missionary journey to Rome. And that is where we last left Paul. Uh, when Angus preached for us the, uh, the shipwreck series and all that's happening there, he comes to, he comes to um, a captain of a ship who's over Roman prisoners, of which he is a part, and then tells them, I think you should do this when you're steering through the ocean. And they say, what are you talking about? You're a prisoner. And Paul stands up with boldness and says, if you don't do this, there's going to be trouble. And of course, there's trouble. And then he stands up with boldness and says, what? You should have listened to me, guys, by the way. Uh, But God will save us if you listen to me now. And so there's a remarkable boldness within Paul's own life that you see again and again. Him standing up to kings, standing up to Jewish leaders, standing up to... um, pagan authorities. And so boldness is the thing that we're going to be talking about today. And we see it captured in verse 31, the last verse of the book. It says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so today, here's our main point, is that boldness for God comes through belief in Jesus. It's pretty simple. Boldness for God comes through belief in Jesus. And there are four things that we're going to talk about today in relation to that. We're going to see a bold life, a bold message, a bold warning, and a bold promise. So if you, if you just need the, the framework for the morning to, uh, to hang on, that's what we're talking about. A bold life, a message, a warning, and a promise. I... I'll start reading for us in uh, Acts chapter 28, verse 17. After, these, after three days, Paul's in Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He starts off on this kind of defensive speech that he's learned to articulate. He says, When they had examined me, They wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you about, hear from you what your views are for, 
with regard to this sect, we know that everything, that everywhere it is spoken against. So what's happening here? Paul, he finally gets to Rome. He's been on this trajectory for chapters now. And uh, he appealed to Caesar. And the Jews tried to kill him. But he escaped. And then the Roman government stepped in and said, no, he's a Roman citizen. You can't do that. And so he's appealed to Caesar. And he is now at Rome where he will eventually give his defense before the emperor about Christianity. And it'll be some time before that happens. And in the meantime, what does he do? Same thing he does every place he's gone. He goes in and he finds the Jewish brothers. And he says, I have to tell you about this news. So he circles people up and he starts to tell them. And uh, this is the first point that we see in Paul's life what he's just said, that a bold life goes for broke. A bold life goes for broke. And of course, what I mean by that is that he's all in. Paul is holding nothing back here. And we see this even in what he just told these new Jewish authorities. And I just had to think about that as I was studying to, uh, to reflect on how I would receive somebody like this. I mean, think about it for yourself. How would you... How would you receive, how would you listen to somebody who gave up everything in their life for what they believed in? Paul was easily one of the best educated people in his day. He was on track to be at the very top of his order, trained by the best. Not only just trained, but zealous. He, he had a lot of passion for his beliefs. And because of Jesus, he lost everything. He lost his notoriety. He lost his position. He lost his future, his financial stability. Once he encountered Jesus, he lost everything. And he said, Jesus is more valuable to me than anything. He talks about this to the Philippians than anything else. He says, everything that I, I valued in this world, I now count a loss. All of my pedigree, all of my training, all of my knowledge, all of my position, nothing in light of Christ. And if you saw somebody like that, if you were talking to somebody sitting across from you, wearing chains because of what they believed, my guess is that you would be compelled to, to at least wonder why it is that they are so passionate about this. What is it that they actually believe? You don't even know the points of what they believe and why they've done this, but you know that this person has sacrificed everything. And so that's what these Jewish people undoubtedly think. They don't know, thankfully, anything about Paul. The uh, Jewish leaders who had been persecuting him up to this point never went to Rome. They never sent a letter. And so Paul is here, and we see, we see in his response and how he opens up the conversation that he is on, on the offense, right? He knows that the conversation's coming, and he knows that people have probably talked about him. And so he launches off into his diatribe. But what does he find out after he's done talking? They don't have a clue. They don't know anything about who he is or what he believes. And so Paul then is in this position where he opens up into a conversation with untilled ground. He can talk to people about Jesus who have really no idea about who he is. And this is, a, this is a great position for Paul to be in. But more importantly, what it shows is that he has everything on the line. He has gone totally in. 
if I can mix uh, if I can mix gambling with a sermon, I would say that all his chips are on the table. Hopefully that didn't offend you too much. But that's what Paul is doing, and that's where he is, that he has gone all in. He, Paul has gone for broke, and, and this is an example for us as believers, that we have to do the same. We should go for broke as well. And as I was thinking about it, I know that most of you and myself would probably say, well, yes, of course. I mean, that's why we're here. Like, that's why we're a church. That's why we believe these things. But at the same time, there are areas of unbelief in our own hearts that we don't even recognize necessarily. And I'll just point one out for you. Kids, if you have kids or you're around kids um, or you were a kid, then you, you probably know that there's a heavy expectation on children for the future. I know as a parent uh, of three boys that I think about their future. I think about what kind of education I want them to have. I want them to be well-adjusted into life, to, uh, to have friends, to be loved, to be healthy, uh, to go to a good college, have a good education, to get a good job and be successful. Those are all desires I have as a parent. And if you're a parent, you have those too. They're natural. They just come with the job. But it's so, it's so easy for those things and those desires to become ultimate at the very top. And even though they're good things, that's not necessarily where they should be. At the top, through the Christian message, what we see is a belief and a love of Jesus. And so let me just point this out for you. Maybe you haven't thought about this or seen this this way. I, I used to be uh, involved in student ministry for years and years, and I saw this recurring all the time. There was a message. Nobody would say it. But here's what most of the parents would say, and I see this in my own life now that it'd be something like this. It's good to be godly, but don't take following Jesus too seriously. We compartmentalize Christianity, and so we, we think like that. It's good to know and love Jesus, but, but know where everything should be. Like knowing and loving Jesus is important, but being financially stable is important too. And so is being respectable, and so is having a nice house and a nice job. And we so easily lump all those things in together on the same level as the gospel. And it can't be so. Like I said, they're good things. We should want those things for our kids. But as that happens, the temptation so easily is to say, it's the gospel and it's my preference. Or it's the gospel and it's a good education or financial stability. And they're all on the same level. And this is not what Paul's saying. This is not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is his life was completely bankrupted for Christ. Everything he had, he counted as loss. Now, Paul very well could have been reputable still. He could, and we certainly see he is in the Bible. He could have been wealthy. It's one of the points that he brings out to the churches that he didn't use his position for wealth. He didn't try to enrich himself. Rather, he worked with his own hands. And so when we think about going for broke, and even for our kids, it may, it may reveal for you an area of life where there's actually difficulty in believing this. When the rubber meets the road, is it really 
really that you want your kids to know and love Jesus at the expense of their personal freedom or their, or their future education is something to consider. Think about it this way. If, you're, if your son or your daughter ends up getting older and, and they go to a nice school, they get a nice job, and then through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and their church community and being a believer in Jesus, they say, you know what? I'm going to leave it all. I'm going to go to an unreached people group, live in, live in virtual poverty, and spend my days in the hot, blazing sun, sweating, trying to teach people about Jesus. Would you consider that a success? It is, it is counterintuitive, especially to our culture and our way of life here, because we would say, well, what are the marks of success? It'd be somebody who's, who's wealthy, who's known. These are none of the things that Paul's claiming to really cling to here. And so we have to do that too. We have to say in order to go all in, to go broke, we have to say that the gospel, Jesus, is really more important to us than anything else in life. And that's the example that Paul gives. So let me ask you this question. What have you given up for the sake of Christ and the gospel? That's another way to think about it. You may want to write it down. What have you given up for the sake of Christ and the gospel? That's what Paul's saying, that he boldly gave up everything for the sake of the gospel. And I wonder if we can say the same. But he didn't just give a life, a bold life, he also gave a message. So that's point two. Let's look at that. In verse, verses 23 and 24, he says, When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So what's happening here? Paul, he's in Rome. He has the first Jewish community that he's synced up with. And he says, you know what? Here's, here's what we're going to do. You're the leaders of this community. You go get your people. Come back to me. And I will tell all of you what I believe and why I'm here. And so that's what they do. They get everybody together and they go visit Paul. We don't know if this was in his house, that he was under guard, he was wearing chains, or if he had some freedom to go to some sort of uh, rotunda outside, some place where he could talk to more people. But undoubtedly, the place is packed. And he gets to share with them what he believes. And so he gives them the message. And here's what we see about the message, point two, that a bold message expounds the kingdom and the king. A bold message expounds the kingdom and the king. We'll get to expounds in just a second because you probably don't use that word in everyday conversation. But what Paul's saying here is he gets everybody together and then in a sweeping fashion, he moves through the entire Old Testament. And he, he talks about a coming kingdom and a coming king. And, and how does he do it? Well, he, he uh, actually does it from morning until evening. So if you think a 45-minute sermon's bad, then you couldn't, stick with, you couldn't hang with Paul. You couldn't do it because every time he gets together with people, he spends all day talking about Jesus, all day 
trying to help people to see and understand and live in light of this beautiful truth of God's overwhelming agenda for the world. That God has a plan. God has always had a plan for man, for mankind. Before Adam and Eve sinned, before you were born, before you woke up, before you did anything good or bad, God had a plan. And this is what Paul begins to talk about, that he expounded to them, testifying to them the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. So we can say squarely that what Jesus is what Paul is doing is saying that Jesus is at the center. He's at the center. And it's how Jesus gave parables too, this kingdom and king language. In Matthew 13, you should have it on the screen, Jesus is talking to people and he says it like this, that the Son of Man will send out his angels. This is at the end of, end of time. And they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They, the angels, will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. When Jesus thought about himself and talked about his, his kingdom, what is he talking about? He's talking about how he and his kingdom are at the center of history. The center of the Old Testament. And we'll see, Paul writing here, the center of the New Testament, the center of even today. This is how Paul read the scriptures. And I wonder if we do it the same way. You see, when you read Genesis and you read about God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus walking in the garden with Adam and Eve? When you read Joshua and you see the commander of the Lord's armies, standing over a kneeling Joshua before the battle of Jericho, do you see King Jesus? When you read Daniel and you see the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days to receive all power and authority over the kingdoms of the world, do you see Jesus? This is how Paul read the Bible. And he had to share with people. And so he gathers this community together that know all these stories. They know, they have memorized the Torah. They know this information far better than you or I ever will. And Paul tells them, you have to see this. This is what it's all about. This king and his kingdom. And by contrast, I would say that if you believe in a Christianity where there's Something in the center other than Jesus, it's not the real deal. It's not the real deal. The Bible points us to Jesus and his kingdom. And so we have to read it that way. We have to see it that way. We have to believe our own lives as revolving in that sort of universe. Now about the expounding, Paul's, he talks about the king and the kingdom, but he uses a certain word here that I think is worthy to highlight and note. He says that he expounded. Luke says Paul expounded to them. This word only occurs four times in the entire Bible. It's a pretty unique word, and it only shows up in Acts. So this is a word that Luke, and only Luke, uses to talk about God. God's uh, mission and explaining what's going on. In the ESV, which you probably have, and the one next to you uh, on the chair, it's going to say explaining. Explaining is not bad. 
but it's a little bit more particular than that. The word comes from two different words combined together, uh, and one is going to be to put out somewhere, and the other is going to, uh, or to put, like to place set somewhere, and the other word is going to be to, to out something, to make it known. And so what Luke is saying here, Paul's doing, is that in expounding, Paul takes Jesus in the gospel, the truth of his kingdom and his kingship, and he says it is at the center. It is at the center of conversation. And so he throws it out there, and how is he expounding? Well, class, participles follow main verbs, and so he says, it's important to know English sometimes, he says that he was testifying or witnessing and convincing, trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. And so the way that Paul is expounding is to say that he, he puts forward this message of Jesus and his kingship and his kingdom, and then he witnesses or he testifies to it. He says, I've seen this true in my own life. I've seen it true in the scriptures. And that's where I think a lot of our effort in evangelism ends. It stops right there. Truth bombs. We walk by a conversation. We, we talk to somebody and say, well, you need to believe the gospel or you go to hell. Okay, well, yes, that's true. But that's not all that Paul's doing here. Paul is putting forward the truth, but he's also reasoning with people about it. He's trying to convince them about it. And this is something that we have to do. It's something that Paul does is that he, he testifies, he witnesses to this, this truth, but then he also reasons with people about it. And we have to do this as believers. You have to enter in with conversations in life. You can't just do a drive-by truth bomb. Now, sometimes in the amount of time that you have, you need to say something just kind of succinct. But this is not Paul's normal MO. He normally walks in. He says, we're going to talk about this for a while. Okay? Grab a lawn chair. It's worthy of your time. It's worthy of your thought and your attention. And it's worthy of ours. And so, if Paul sees Jesus this way, if Paul reads the Bible this way, then we should too. He expounded to them. And so a question for you is this. When you read the Bible, do you see Jesus at the center? Something always to have on your mind when you're reading the scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, poetry, narrative, apocalyptic. It doesn't matter what the genre is. When you read the Bible, do you see Jesus at the center? If we're going to be bold like Paul, then we must believe the same message that he did. And then we must give it like he did with Jesus at the center. So that's the first and second point. The third is that Paul gives a bold warning to those who will not accept this king. So there's a bold life that Paul gives them in his own life, a bold message that he gives about Jesus in the gospel and his kingdom, and now he gives a bold warning. And we start in verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they hear this message, and disagree, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and their 
their ears can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Paul gives a stinging rebuke to these people. And as he's talking with them, it's evident that some people say, you know what, this is pretty convincing. I'm going to have to go back and read my uh, copy of Joel about this. Never thought about things this way. And there's other people that hear it and instantly reject it. They say, that can't be right. That can't be right. Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. He's not really the king of all things. And so they reject it. And Paul does what any good Old Testament prophet did. He rebuked their unbelief. And that's the third third point, that a bold warning confronts unbelief. When Paul saw this unbelief welling up in their hearts, this opposition to seeing Jesus at the center of all things, then what he did is just rip a page out of Isaiah and say the same thing to them that Isaiah said to their fathers. He said that you're not really, in essence, a part of the family. You're not really a part of the family. You're a brother but you're not really a brother. And we have a clue for this in the uh, preceding verses that we didn't go over. Paul will, will uh, mention, and Luke will mention Paul doing this, that he goes to the brothers. Every time he goes to a new place, first thing, go to the brothers. Are there any brothers there? Jewish brothers, that's good. I can share the gospel with them. But are there any Christian brothers who are Jewish? And that's what we see in verse 14 and in verse 15 that Paul comes in right before he goes to Rome and he stops right before he gets to Rome to huddle up with some brothers, some, some Christian believers. And then he goes into Rome and in verse 17 that we read, how does it start? That he, that he, when he came to them, he gathered the brothers. And so there's something going on here that you need to be aware of. It's totally possible. This is the message in the Old Testament to to be a descendant of Abraham, who was um, the father of the Jewish faith. You can totally be genealogically a descendant and not a spiritual descendant. Just because you're a Jewish person doesn't mean that you're actually one of the covenant people of God. And that's what Paul is saying. You see, there's this brother language that he, he draws everybody together and he says, brothers, let me tell you this. I need to tell you this. And then after they reject the gospel message, what does he say? He doesn't say brothers. In verse 25, he says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers. What Paul says is, okay, this isn't right. We're not of the same family. He doesn't say my father, does he? He says, your fathers. So what Paul is saying, he says, when there's unbelief about who Jesus is and why he came, you got to be clear. We're not, we're not talking the same language here. We're not of the same people. Even though I'm physically a Jew, like you are, that doesn't mean that you know God. And so what does all this mean for uh, for us some 2,000 years later and being Gentiles and not growing up in a Jewish religious system. Uh, I would say that it means this, that what we're talking about are people who, who tried very hard to be moral, tried very hard to be religious. And ironically, they're not actually religious. They're not actually 
believers in God. And so the same can be true for us very easily. And maybe for you, this is just your life and how you grew up, but why are you here? Like, why are you at church? Is it because you just grew up doing that? Are you like one of these religious leaders that Paul's talking about? Or these Jews? That they think, oh, I know God. I go to church. I go to church. I'm in a church building or a gym. And therefore, I'm a Christian. Or I try to act good. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Or I have read my Bible. Or I even read my Bible. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Paul says, no. This is not the way it works. The only people who really know God are people who believe in Jesus and what he's done. And so Paul draws the line clearly, and he gives a warning to confront their unbelief. And it's a warning that God gave in Isaiah to confront our unbelief, that we have to see this difference. We have to see this difference. And so for you, I wonder, are you playing religion? Are you just playing at it? Or are you really a brother like Paul's talking about? That's something that you have to grapple with and you have to decide. Do you really believe the claims of the gospel? That Jesus came, lived, died, and rose on our behalf? Or is it just some information that you're acquainted with? Or maybe something you would say, I agree, but in reality, there's no power in your life. There's no boldness. That's what Luke is telling us about Paul here, that Paul has a bold warning that only people who are really in the family believe. Otherwise, if you're someone who has come to church, then you're really, and I believe, then you're really just someone who has a broken heart. What do I mean by a broken heart? I, I mean that in the Old Testament, the way that God's talking about this and the way that Isaiah is talking about it, as Paul quotes him, is to say that there's a, there's a fundamental problem with your heart. And the way that Isaiah talks about it, he says that you can hear but not, actually you can have ears but not hear, you can have eyes but not see. Why? Because the heart, the heart is broken. The heart doesn't understand. And for the Jewish mind and the Jewish thought, the heart is really the center of the deciding factors. It's the heart that is not ushy and gushy like so much of uh, Western thought thinks, but the heart for the Jewish mind is what actually believes. The heart is actually the, the, the organ that makes the decisions and the convictions. And so what God is saying through Isaiah, and then Paul says to them, is the problem here is your heart. You don't even have the ability to believe. You don't have the ability. But at the same time, you choose not to do this. It's a responsibility. You say, I hear what you're saying, and I don't love it. I don't believe it. And so, for us, the question really is, are you like this? Are you just playing the religious game? Or are you a brother, like Paul is talking about? Point number four, we see that a bold promise calls for faith. So Paul gives them his life, which is a bold life. He's given everything for the sake of the gospel. He gives them this message, which is bold. And he gives them a warning, which is very clearly bold and, and turns people away. It's so offensive. 
And then he gives them this promise, a bold promise. In verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's the end of the story. Paul talks to them. He confronts them on their unbelief. And then he ends it with a promise. He says that even though this is the situation, that you can't believe from the heart, you need a new heart, there's a promise that God will send this message to the Gentiles. And in fact, he already has. That's what Paul's been doing. And what does he say? They will listen. This is huge. We could spend years mining out what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that in this, this entire plan of God, there has always been, always been a desire for not just one people group to know who he is, but every person on the planet throughout time, every human being. And not just a plan for them to know him, but what does he say? That the Gentiles, not all of them, but some of them, they will listen. They will hear. They will see. They will understand with their hearts. This is, this is an incredible promise to believe in. An incredible promise. And it extends to the Jewish people. In Ezekiel 11, it says this, that I will give them integrity of the heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so that they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. This has always been an a plan, an agenda of God's. That people will come and worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is what Paul says at the end, that this is a promise that we cling to. When you go and you talk to people about Jesus, keep this verse in mind. It may not be that person who believes, but if you believe in Jesus, it was true for you. This statement that they will listen is God's, God's stamp of approval to say that his plan will succeed. People will become new creations. They will value Jesus and forsake vain things in life. So it should give you great confidence and hope, and it certainly did Paul. And that's why we see he stayed for two whole years preaching the same gospel, meeting with people, being hospitable. It's an incredible thing that Paul believe this. It, Paul had no confidence in his own persuasion or, or articulation in giving the gospel. Paul's confidence was this. They will listen. You think it was hard for Paul to get up in the morning having a stiff body, scars all over it, beaten, shipwrecked so many times? Yeah, I think it was hard. Harder than mine. And he still was able to get up every day, share the gospel. Why? They will listen. I can see Paul just saying that to himself every morning. They will listen. I don't know who, but they will listen. And so that's why we preach. That's why we evangelize. That's why we share the gospel. 
Because in God's plan, by his power, they will listen. And so there's an ending to Acts here that we see. That Paul, he, he finishes out this way. He proclaims the kingdom of God, teaching it, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And there's an optimistic point to this ending of the book. But there's also a tragic part. You see, the tragic part here is that it, it really comes off of the optimistic part. What happened in the beginning? Jesus said, my word will go forward into all the world. It'll start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. And here Paul is at the ends of the earth in the Roman Empire, at the seat of the capital, where all the commerce is, where all the communication is. Anything that happens there goes throughout the entire world. And the gospel has gone all the way. It has conquered all these cities, disciples everywhere in the known world now. And yet, tragically, at the same time, there are people right at the center, at Paul's doorstep, who reject the gospel. It's tragic. Absolutely tragic. But at the same time, triumphant. Because the way it ends is to say that this word keeps going. It's tragically rejected, but it's triumphantly proclaimed. As the gospel continues to go forward, Paul says, I'm not stopping. Two years. And what we know from church history is that after these two years, Paul's released from his imprisonment, and then shortly after, by Nero, then imprisoned again, and then executed. And so as I was reading over this, I had to think, like, why didn't Luke, as he's recording this two-part saga, Luke-Acts, for Theophilus, this main guy he's writing it for that probably funded it, why isn't he including that part of Paul's life? I mean, it'd be nice to, to see, like, how it ends with Paul, because it kind of ends with Paul preaching, dot, 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 and that's it. But the reason I think Luke didn't add that is because he knows it's not Paul's story. It's God's story. It's mainly not about Paul. It's mainly about Jesus. And so as Luke finishes out this account of Paul, what he's saying is the gospel goes forward regardless of who lives or dies. The gospel continues to go forward. And this is a really important thing for us as a church because as a church we are an Acts 29 church. And if you're unfamiliar with Acts 29 churches or the Acts 29 network, this is really where it gets its basis. It's the root of the story that we're not trying to say an Acts 29 church is, is the ultimate church and other churches aren't as important or aren't as, aren't as, uh, as faithful. The point is to say that in Acts 28, Paul finishes, finishes his gospel proclamation and it keeps going. And because it keeps going and because of God's promise that they will listen there's another church, and another one, and another one, and another one, and new communities all throughout the world until Jesus comes. This is why we're in Acts 29 church, that it's a network about churches planting churches. This is God's, God's primary strategy for his kingdom infiltrating the world, that it's churches planting churches. And so we see that Paul's in Acts 28, but really, as we finish out, we're in Acts 29. 
where Paul left off his ministry in Acts 28, as it kept going, we pick up. We're in the final chapter of the book. We, our church and every church, until Jesus comes, is in some sense an Acts 29 church. We live here. We're waiting for his return. We want to be faithful. We want to be bold in proclaiming his message until he comes. And by God's power, we can become that. We can become people with bold lives like Paul, giving a bold message, warning, confronting unbelief boldly, and also calling people to believe this wonderful, bold promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the book of Acts that gives us answers to to what it is that you have been doing in the world and what you will continue to do in the world through your gospel. God, we ask that you would help us to be faithful with what you have revealed for us. God, I ask that you would encourage us with your truth that as we go, as we believe, as we lead, as we take care of our families, as we interact with coworkers, as we talk with family, that you would have in our mind your your mission for your son, that they will listen. God, would you encourage us and empower us to be bold like we see in Acts. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.